Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. It's another edition of Political Rewind for the start of a new week. Welcome to all of you out there. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh Jim Galloway on this Monday afternoon is uh, with me, as he is on uh, most Mondays and Fridays. He's the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, of course. And uh, you read his column in the newspaper on Wednesdays and Sundays. And, of course, he oversees the uh, Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Hey, Jim. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm very relieved we finally have a location, a venue. <laughs> I've been so worried about where the Democrats would put their debate. No, it's not official yet. <laughs> no, it's not official well, yet. Well, I guess, okay, well, we'll get to it in a couple minutes. But first, uh, let me introduce the others in our uh, studio with us. And, by the way, uh, you can see them if you join us on Facebook Live, just go to the GPB News page on Facebook Live. Or, as Tom Faust has been mentioning to me, you can also listen to us on every social media. I mean, there are so many platforms. Our website, our podcast, you can listen to it everywhere you want. Isn't that great, Melita Easters? I think it's wonderful. Melita Easters is the uh, founder and the director of the Georgia Win List, which is an organization, you've heard me say it before, that recruits Democratic women who are pro-choice to run for office. It's a great pleasure to be with you again. Yeah, we're glad to have you. And we're also glad to have uh, former state representative Edward Lindsay, used to represent Atlanta in the uh, state house, finally gave up the (laughs) elective politics to uh, become a partner now at Denton's, Ed, the world's largest law firm. That's correct. You were you were uh, you spent the weekend on Saint Simon's. I did. I uh, went down for a beautiful wedding. For those of you who do listen in on the uh, on a lot, sometimes you've heard of uh, Emma Hurt, who works at uh, with public radio over like, down the street from over us. down the street yeah, from you. She's and she terrific. Got, she got married to a very fine young man who's. Uh, one of the closest friends of my twins. Well, we we like people down the street, so we give a, yeah. a hearty congratulations to Emma and her uh, new husband. Um, all right, let's get right to it. Jim, all this speculation, which I, we have said on the show several times, mattered to virtually no one except <laughs> political junkies or people like uh, us who are, have to cover these things. Uh, they finally decided, no, we're not going to go to the 6th or 7th district. We're going to put this debate in the heart of Atlanta. It, I think a pretty interesting choice, Tyler Perry's new uh, studio complex, 300-plus acres down where Fort McPherson used to be. Right, right, six miles south of downtown. Yeah, yeah. Very close to the airport. Um, it strikes me that there are there are f- really good stories for that can come out of this for Democrats if you are simply playing to your base, an African-American entrepreneur who's had tremendous success, right? right. Um, you're talking about somebody who's redeveloped a part of Atlanta that he hopes will grow uh, commercially uh, around him. I mean, there are all sorts of uh, good stories you can tell when you're playing to your base. Right, right. You know, it, and, and one of the more subtler parts of that is, you know, there's some uh, immediate there was some immediate pushback on the Republican side that said, oh, the Democrats are going Hollywood. But not but not exactly. Not <laughs> no, no, not really. No. Not really. Because because this is I mean, this is uh, uh, Tyler Perry is very much not Hollywood. Yeah. Oh. Uh, he is kind of he's 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 a, a, a southerner of, of his own shtick here. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's uh, uh, I would also point out that this is on a very large private property complex. And that does keep uh, keep uh, protesters and 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 uh, uh, that's a lot of acreage that will be under under private control. The, the word is that and, and this I, I want to start by saying I don't know how much truth there is to this, but we were all kind of had it told it to us in the ether out there that the Democrats were leaning towards going up to Rusty Paul, Mayor Rusty Paul's Sandy Springs facility, City Springs, which is a beautiful new cultural arts center that Keisha Bottoms particularly fought fiercely 
to get this thing in the city of Atlanta. That's the story we're all hearing. Yeah, and I think it's it's starting to, it's starting to come out. I mean, I think what what you had was maybe uh, DNC, maybe some Washington support for for a a sixth district location, knowing that knowing that Lucy McBath is 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 running for that uh, that uh, all important first reelect. Yeah, yeah. Edward, what did you uh, th- uh, think when you heard about that? Well, I, th- I thought it was a win win for just about everybody. Uh, the fact of the matter is that it's a big win for Mayor Bottoms, who gets to trumpet uh, economic development on the south side of Atlanta. It was a win for Republicans because they could trumpet the fact that they're going to a facility that would not have existed uh, but for economic development and tax laws that were changed uh, in 2007 uh, that promoted uh, the entertainment industry to come into Georgia, in which has now grown from about $350 million a year impact in Georgia to a $9.5 billion a year impact in Georgia. So it was a win for them. And quite frankly, it probably is a little bit of a win for Lucy McBath because the way that some of these debates have gone in terms of tilting to the left, Lucy McBath is running in a moderate district, swing district. And I'm not so sure if she really wanted to have uh, uh, 20 or so uh, Democrats up there trumpeting to see how far they could go to the left. Well, the other big win for Lucy McBath is not having to bother with all of the people who would have wanted her to get them tickets. That may even be the biggest win of all. But the other, the other thing that this um, location does is gives the Democrats a big nod to the most loyal, largest base of their voters, African-American women. The women who fueled Tyler Perry's film Empire by going to every single one of the Medea movies. All of the Medea, which we just learned. I didn't know this, Jim. You were surprised as I was. A couple minutes before the show, uh, Melita, you made that point. Oh, this is for the Medea audience. And so I pulled up a trailer uh, or an interview with Tyler Perry, and we all heard very briefly them talk about 11 Medea pictures. I had no idea he that was a strong. It's a strong franchise, (laughs) and those women love him and how much he's made them laugh over the years. And I think showcasing the empire he's built um, will be a loyalty builder for them. Yeah. I think, Jim, another thing that's going to be, look, I mean, we know we're going to see stories ahead of time, TV stories. uh, They're going to be written about in the national newspapers as well about the Tyler Perry facility. He's now got 12 sound stages there. Uh, So it's also going to be a boon for the Georgia film industry. This is a place to come and make your movies, not Mm -hmm. just at Tyler Perry's. Mm -hmm. But if you can't book his studio, we've got all these other incredible facilities as well. But there's also something kind of uh, lovely about the Tyler Perry facility. He pointed out when he built his 12 sound stages that nowhere else were there sound stages. Typically, the studios name their sound stages after stars. And he says, and I don't know this to be a fact, but I assume he knows what he's talking about, that nowhere else are sound stages named after great African-Americans in the film business. So there's a Diane Carroll. There's a, a Denzel Washington sound stage. Those are the sort it's of Sydney little Poitier, tidbits. Uh, Spike Lee. Yeah. Spike Lee, yeah. yes. Even, are... even some of the Hollywood establishment who had earlier criticized him in his career Spike Lee still got a stage named after him. <laughs> and these are the kind of little tidbits, as you well know, Galloway, that reporters, when they're doing the color stories about a, a location, a venue, love to pick up on. Oh, sure, sure. And this is, I mean, uh, you, you, you have to know that the guy is going to be giving tours of the place for, uh, from here until November 20th. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, well, and, and he has such a humble, gracious demeanor about him when he's being interviewed that I think will appeal to a lot of people in those stories and during those tours. All right. So, Melita, let me turn to you first, and then uh, you're certainly welcome to weigh in on this, too, Ed. Um, the, you know, Ed Lindsay just said, uh, you know, Lucy McBath maybe didn't want all those liberals in, uh, you know, up there near her uh, uh, stomping grounds uh, up there in the 6th District. It, but does venue really matter one way or another at all? I mean, 
Lucy McBath is still going to be painted as an out-of-touch liberal radical by the Republicans, no matter where the debate is. But, so two questions. One, did Democrats miss an opportunity to maybe expand their base a little bit up in the suburbs, whether it's 6th or 7th District, or could the location matter less? I think the location matters depending upon the spin you give it. And in that instance, the Tyler Perry Studios is far more spinnable than City Springs would have been. And I think that Lucy McBath will be perfectly capable of carving out her own identity. I I was at a couple of events over the weekend where there were a lot of grassroots women who had campaigned for Lucy McBath's first election, and they are still very loyal to her. They are very thrilled that she's running for Congress again and not toying with a Senate bid, and they are ready to get out and knock on doors just as they did before. The other part, Bart, Bill, is is uh, is, is look how this fits into uh, Stacey Abrams's uh, vision of uh, what Georgia will be politically over the next decade, uh, where you have where where you start you start to pay to pay more attention, and uh, uh, to the to the African American base, and it it comes to its own not uh, into its own not just in terms of power but also in terms of a financial a financial uh, heft. Well, and, well, and if, go ahead, Molly. Well, I was going to say what Jim was just saying. Stacey Abrams, in her speech at the Democratic dinner, talked about the fact that more African-American voters voted for her in 2018 than had voted total in 2014. And she talked about the the Latinx and Asian-American voters um, more than doubling um, the youth vote increasing by 139%. And then on Friday afternoon, even after your show had already closed, you had the announcement of um, 510,000 new voters just in the last 10 months. And so attracting the messaging that attracts these youthful voters, these new voters, is very consistent with the hip, exciting film industry. Right. Um, let me. We're going to have plenty of time to talk about this in the weeks ahead. But, Edward, you want to get a last word in on this? You know, like I said earlier, I, I, I think it was a, a smart move, I think, for a lot of different reasons. Does it really make a difference in terms of attracting folks who might not otherwise vote for Democrats to think about voting for Democrats? No. Uh, but for uh, for all the reasons we've already expressed on the stories leading up to it, there's something in there for everyone uh, to trump. Um Jim, a friend of ours who runs a film studio here in Atlanta is listening to the show, and uh, he uh, he just sent a text to me that may be worth one more mention about the uh, uh, the Tyler Perry choice. The choice of Tyler Perry Studios might also explain why Tyler Perry recently came out against the heartbeat bill after pretty much total silence. We were all glad that that happened. That's interesting. I wasn't aware of that, it, but it, certainly it the other studio folks would know that. Yeah, yeah, studio folks would know that. Most other studio folks have been uh, decidedly neutral. Yeah, on on this, they, uh, it, it may be changing now that we, now that it's in federal court. I hadn't even thought about the implications of that. That this does suddenly, Melita, you're nodding vigorously. Maybe raise, you know, will, other film studio heads will be asked about this now too here in uh, Georgia. I would think. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Let's do this. As I said, we'll have plenty of time in the weeks ahead. That debate's on November 20th. We'll learn more and more as we move forward about the plans for the studio, how they're going to set it up and all that sort of thing. Uh, And we'll get to that as we continue to move toward the debate. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the impeachment uh, process, especially as it relates to Georgia. Just one headline, Charles Kupperman, who was the deputy to former National Security Advisor John Bolton, had been subpoenaed to testify uh, today before the three committees that are uh, doing this inquiry. He, as you probably know by now, he has gone to court and said that he feels there are contrary uh, pulls involved in this. He feels that perhaps the executive branch has a right to uh, uh, 
exert executive privilege and prevent him from testifying, but he also recognizes that Congress has a right to investigate. So he's asked a court, basically, Jim, to sort this out. He's passed the ball off to them. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 I, I don't know whether this is a delaying tactic that he's doing on, on behalf of the Trump administration, but it, it actually gives the, 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 the courts a, an interesting entree. Of course, last uh, last week, they there was a ruling that uh, you had a, a district-level federal judge uh, uh, say that uh, that the House Democrats' uh, in, uh, impeachment inquiry was was uh, was course, uh, in, uh, entirely they, legitimate. Edward, well, I think it's a sign he has a smart lawyer. Uh, you don't necessarily <laughs> want to uh, ignore the the edicts of your boss, and he still works within the White House. And you also don't want to ignore a subpoena. Yeah. And so he's got a lawyer who said, "Look, what we're going to do is we're going to let the we're going to take this to court and put it in their hands and say, hey, do I honor this subpoena or do I honor the order from my boss?' I think I, you know, you know, uh, hats off to his lawyer. I, I think it's it it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I understand Melita that Democrats want to get him. In there, I mean, he obviously would have a lot of information having worked so closely with John Bolton. Um, but it, 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 a smart lawyer. Yeah. Uh, but again, as Jim says, give the chan- the court another court a chance to weigh in on all well, of this. Well, but then what happens <clears throat> if it goes up for an immediate appeal to right. the Supreme Court when Chief Justice Roberts is to preside over a Senate trial? Is there? A necessity for a recusal for Roberts not to decide about who can be called by the House if he is later um, to preside in the Senate. I don't know about that. Well, I will say this. It depends on whether or not the trial judge, let's assume that he's going to rule that that the gentleman should testify. It's up to the trial judge to determine whether or not uh, this is something that he will stay his order or not. So So he may very well... You know, order him to go testify and not stay the stay his decision, which would compel him to go ahead and testify. Uh, House Democrats, for the first time, have publicly said they're threatening to charge Kupperman uh, with contempt if he doesn't appear. The only reason I think they would be suddenly looking at this with Kupperman is he's kind of a stalking horse for Bolton himself, right, right? right. Uh, Jim? That's the guy they really want to get to, and we don't know what's going to happen there. But this also sort of sets it up in terms of determining uh, for that for that matter, whether or not Bolton should testify. So let's go ahead right. and get it in front of a judge. Right. Let that judge decide whether or not they can be compelled to testify, and let's move on from this particular issue. All right. Um, getting back to Georgia and impeachment, um, our own Buddy Carter um, made an appearance on Saturday Night Live. Saturday night. I know you probably didn't see this segment, Jim, because by then you're way past your bedtime. Oh, no, I watched those oh, on Sunday did. morning on YouTube. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, a weekend update. Uh, did a little uh, uh, feature about the Republicans who came down and stormed the skiff, uh, the secured room in which the in- investigation is unfolding. And uh, they showed a clip of Buddy Carter uh, at the microphones outside the skiff and uh, had some comic Colin Jost. You'll hear this unfold starting with Colin Jost. A group of House Republicans led by live-action quagmire Matt Gates <laughs> stormed, into a, stormed into a hearing room during testimony in the impeachment inquiry, and these Republicans were not happy with how Trump is being treated. If a government can do this to the President of the United States, they can do it to you as well. You need to be scared. You need to be very scared. Yes, somehow I'm not scared. I just don't think that the average American is scared that they're going to lose their job for withholding military aid for Ukraine. This protest was so lame that halfway through, the Republicans ordered a pizza. Edward, we now have had a few days uh, to uh, uh, think about what happened with that, but I'm not sure that the Republicans who uh, stormed the skiff really did themselves any favors, did they? Well, this was political theater, Uh, somewhat similar to the political theater we saw a couple of years ago when the Dems held a sit-in on the House floor over gun control. Uh, But it does sort of go to a more serious issue, which is whether or not the process that's going forward in the House 
uh, is an open process in which the American people can witness and help make an informed decision. And as a lawyer, I think process is important. I mean, we, you know, I, I, and I've been a little bit surprised by some in the in the media who don't seem to be taking the process issue that seriously. Uh, you know, this is a an impeachment of a president of the United States who was duly elected. Uh, if you're going to remove him from office, shouldn't you be having a more open process in which you're bringing in witnesses? Both sides can witness them. For that matter, both sides can bring in witnesses and help the American people decide whether or not this is a smart thing to do. The charges against the president are very serious. I've said so on this show on multiple occasions and some of the things that he has done I very much disagree with. But I do believe that that beneath or the Behind the theater that we're seeing, there's some serious questions as to whether or not uh, the Democrat Democrats who are controlling uh, the House need to open up the process and let the American people see for themselves what these folks are testifying to. Because right now we have, after everyone testifies, we have folks on one side coming out and saying one thing and folks on the other side coming out and saying another. And underneath the present rules uh, that have been laid down by the chair of the committee, neither side are or permitted to actually go into detail as to what has been testified Melita, to. the uh, Democrats do have to fight off optics that are not in their favor right now. Uh, they, they will open the hearings <laughs> up. We, we know that Republicans in the majority have held hearings behind closed doors. Uh, so, but but we're not dealing with what happened before. We're dealing with what's happening right now. Well, the Democrats are operating under rules set up by the Republicans when they were in charge, number one. Number two, this publicity stunt is different from the sit-in on the floor of the House because this publicity stunt breached protocols for a secure space and broke rules for that secure space. And so those Republicans... Um, thumbed their nose at at protocols that are that are supposed to be um, respected, mm-hmm. and and so that was part of what made their behavior so um, well, reprehensible. And and in some ways, it mirrors the president's own behavior this weekend when he told Russia about the military operation and refused to follow the protocols of of interaction between the president and Congress by not letting the big eight know that that operation was taking place. Yeah, we place. know that he didn't. But, he, but let, me, let me sort of address Very quickly, very I briefly. really don't want to go down this Number rabbit one, hole for too long. We heard, and, and <laughs> quite frankly, when the Democrats uh, in Congress held that sit-in, that they were also breaching protocols. Uh, to how the House is supposed to operate. Number two is that uh, the Democratic part, uh, leadership is doing this impeachment very different from how Republicans did uh, the impeachment inquiry into Clinton uh, in 1998 and well, how the, the Democrats did the impeachment of uh, uh, President Nixon, Nixon in 1973-74. Here's where I have to jump in on a fact check on this because we've talked about yeah. this on the show. The Nixon impeachment and the Clinton impeachment followed special prosecutors who had already gathered facts, had built their cases that were then taken to the committees, the judiciary committees, whatever. In this case, there was no special prosecutor. They are gathering facts now and will then turn to open hearings. But we have an election only a year away. If we're going to be able to get an impeachment in this year before you start uh, running into an election, uh, they need to move forward with the public as quickly as possible. I doubt that that we're going to reach a trial stage before the end of the year. But it would not surprise me. In, in say in the next week to ten days to see Democrats have at least one or two public hearings. I think yeah. they have to. I've said this on the show. I, I, just think they, to, I think they. I think you're right. I think they do I, have to. I think that in the long run they've got to get this to open hearings because I, I, although the numbers on impeachment of the president seem to be growing, we'll his, see his if there's a point. We'll see yeah. if there's not a problem. If they don't start turning to open hearings, all right. I want to get one more item in because we got some. No, we got some news. Greg Bluestein uh, just sent me a text. Jim Galloway, your colleague, has a really interesting story here. Uh, Chris Carr, the Attorney General of Georgia and the former uh, Chief of Staff to Senator Johnny Isaacson, just put out a tweet that Greg saw. 
Here's the exact language of the tweet from Chris. I support Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senator David Perdue, and Senator Isaacson. The House is setting a bad precedent. Impeachment should only ever be pursued with extreme caution, must follow due process, and must be open and transparent. I I knew he was listening to our show. (laughs) (laughs) And by that, I mean Bluestein and Carr. All right, let's do this. Let's take a break, and we'll be back with more in a minute. You've been thinking about helping this station with a donation. Why not donate that extra car, truck, or RV you no longer need? It's easy. Pickup is free. It could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. And you could even get a tax deduction. Get the process started today. Give us a call to learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. And thanks very much for your support. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars. Five years ago, ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi declared a new Islamic state in Mosul. Now people there are reacting to news of his death. The Al-Nuri Mosque, where al-Baghdadi declared his caliphate, is mostly destroyed, and the UN has started to rebuild it. But the society that ISIS fractured won't be so easily repaired. Reaction to the ISIS leader's death from Iraq this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us this afternoon from 4 to 7 here on GPB. It would throw... Here we are back on Political Rewind with uh, Melita Easters, uh, Edward Lindsay, and Jim Galloway in the studio with us today. Uh, On Friday's show, Jim, we started talking about what is a very prestigious annual survey. It's called the American Values Survey of PRRI, the Public Religious uh, Research Institute, which every year... I mean, this is there's a this is a data rich study. Um, Tom Faust, I wonder if we can put a link to the PRRI survey up on our social media, because I think people might like to get into it a little bit more. And I promised Friday we didn't have much time that we would do more with it uh, today. So I'm going to throw out some figures to all of you. I know that each of you has had a chance to look at this, but let me just start with with this portion of the survey. And let's see what we think about this. Um, This is like, by the way, a survey of 3,000-plus individuals across the country. Um, The survey found that Americans believe, Americans in general, believe that the top three issues for 2020 are health care, terrorism, and climate change. But they break that down by party affiliation, which leads them to what the name of their survey is this year, fractured nation. And here's why. The survey shows that Democrats say the top issues are health care, climate change, and um, foreign interference elections, whereas Republicans say that the top issues are terrorism, immigration, and crime. And Going into percentages on the radio is very difficult, but there alone, Jim, you see this real divide in terms of what people think are the most important issues for next year. Oh yeah, this is look, look. This is a we we have become a a nation separated by algorithms. You know, you you <laughs> you, you you are fed what you have seen, and you are and you see what you've been fed, and it, it you know it kind of I've I've wanted I've wanted to to, to to pitch this idea. I think we all need to swap cell phones. <laughs> and, 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 and let the person across the table use yours for maybe an hour, two hours, and uncall up all those stories that you wouldn't, just just to thwart uh, thwart what's happening to us. Yeah, I uh, I actually teach a class along with Mary Margaret Oliver uh, at our in our parish called Finding Jesus on the Front Page, and that is a requirement in the class is that you are allowed, you are required to watch or read. Uh, some uh, news source that has a diametrically opposite view of yours in that in that we can come back and talk about it and and I you know and I believe as you went as we went through this and looked through through this study uh, it simply confirms what we've already been talking about for a long time and that so many of us have siloed our news sources uh, so that uh, conservatives are getting their news source from one uh, entity and liberals from another entity. And uh, driving back and forth across the state of Georgia this week, uh, as I flipped around on my uh, on my radio, I can tell you right now 
the two the different news sources left and right are not talking about the same news stories. So, but Melita, let me throw something in here and then let you respond to th- what I'm asking and then uh, whatever other observation you want to make. Um, so I think it's fascinating that Democrats see health care as by far the most important issue in the, the 2020 election. Independents surveyed uh, also say that health care is the number one issue, 64 percent of them. Um, and climate change is as, almost as important to independents as it is to Democrats. So with that said, number one, we learned last year in the mid-year elections just how important health care is to winning elections. Independents embrace Democrats who uh, uh, said, you know, pre-existing conditions was the most important issue they were dealing with. Even in the 6th District, Lucy McBath really made it a priority over gun control in many well, ways. Well, and, and health care is a big issue. And, and in parts of rural Georgia, which are ruby red, it is a big issue because there half the counties lack an OBGYN which leads to people not wanting to continue to live in those rural areas. And you have hospitals which have closed. For example, the Valdosta Hospital right now doesn't is not even certified. It's taking in patients, but it's not certified. And that serves a big um, expanse of counties where the local hospitals have closed. So even in ruby red areas, health care becomes an issue based on local circumstances. But you don't expect Democrats are suddenly going to make inroads in much of rural Georgia over health care. Not always over health care, but it tatters, it, 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 it casts doubts on the, the Republican office holders who currently are there and let a hospital go without certification or let a hospital locally close. Yep. Oh. So it, it, it chips away at their support. Jim? What, what, what I would uh, I, I'd dearly love to see the crosstabs on the crosstabs, especially as it, as it goes uh, it goes uh, by age, because because both health care and climate change are very, very much very generationally driven issues. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm coming up on on 65. My health care is taken care of. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my children's health care certainly isn't. Well, uh, newsflash, I was beginning to agree with Melita until the very end. Uh, <laughs> well, I but, always love it when you agree with me. I know that. But, but I do agree with you absolutely that that the quality health care in rural areas is, is, is at a crisis point, and, but we've been drifting toward a crisis point for decades. Uh, the fact of the matter is you're not going to have economic development unless you've got, uh, in particular, th- uh, three things, and maybe even a fourth or fifth, but three in particular. One is quality health care. Second one is a qualified workforce. And the third one is transportation and, and in so many of these hospitals. But I will say this, is that Republicans, at least in the General Assembly, have not been ignoring this issue. I mean, there is the Rural Development Council uh, that did push forward some health care issues in the last General Assembly session. And is uh, and, and every time uh, that they hold one of their com- uh, meetings around the state, Health care is on the on the on the list. Well, Stephen Fowler, our, our GPB political reporter, uh, you know, has talked to the governor who says this is he's rolling out a big, big rural health care yeah. initiative in the, in the next session of the General Assembly. So, I mean, they get what Melita's saying. They're just hoping to contr- keep keep a, a, a hold of the rural areas of the state if they address these matters. Well, I don't know if you all follow him, but Charlie Hazlett's blog, Trouble in God's Country, does some amazing data dives. I don't quite, I don't have a head for figures the way he does, but some of his conclusions about the disparities in rural Georgia are are truly amazing. I I want to dig down just a little bit into some of the crosstabs that are interesting, I think, Um, because, again, this is an organization that looks at religious affiliation and how people of various faiths are feeling about the issues. Um, When you look at the top three critical issues by religious affiliation, white mainline Protestants, black Protestants, Hispanic Protestants, white Catholics uh, all say that health care is the number one issue in the election. Jim, it is white evangelicals who say terrorism is the top issue and health care isn't even and immigration is second. Health care falls to third. That's really interesting. It's it, it's interesting. It it does tell you it it shows you 
the, the kind of the bond that exists between, I think, Donald Trump and, and white evangelicals. Uh, terrorism is a is a, is is very much of a, a fear issue. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a an expression of uh, expression of uncertainty. I think. Well, and some of that feeds into the philosophical underpinning of an evangelical pastor, say, a fire and brimstone Baptist, whose sermons are more often fear-based and therefore Trumpian in nature, as opposed to, say, an Episcopalian pastor who talks more about love. Well, sometimes I wonder when I when I see these numbers, and I kind of wonder whether or not a little more drilling down was necessary if they had broken it down along economic levels, or for that matter, along rural versus suburban versus urban. Because I suspect that not all white evangelicals are thinking the same thing. They're not. They don't all come from the same area. And sometimes when you hear, well, women think this or evangelicals think this, I go, you need to drill down a little bit uh, uh, farther down uh, to sort of see uh, how that group breaks out in terms of where they go on a particular issue. Well, and and in rural Georgia, I mean, the evangelical, um, you know, a a real small town has Baptist, Methodist, foot washers and snake handlers. And you have to go a few miles to find the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians. So sometimes the rural areas, um, it's, it's, it's limited by the, the, the closeness of which yeah. church option you have. Let, let, let's, let's refine our language to say maybe Baptists and Pentecostals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. That's right. There's some truth to that. But, but look, ever since um, the president's decision to pull out of Syria, and this survey does not reflect that because it was conducted certainly before then, but there have been ever since then some questions as to whether perhaps the president might be losing some of his evangelical support uh, because uh, evangelicals, some of them, uh, see it as an abandonment of a Christian community that needs to be uh, free from persecution, which if their fears will happen there. There are concerns about whether Syria, whether suddenly Iran will have uh, more power in terms of dealing with Israel. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons evangelicals are worried about this to the extent that Pat Robertson, as you'll all recall, because we played it on the show and here it comes again, said this about Trump in that decision. I am absolutely appalled that the United States is going to betray those democratic forces in northern Syria that we possibly are going to allow the Turkish to come in against the Kurds. That Erdogan is a thug. He has taken control of his country as a dictator. He is a strong leader and a, to say he's an ally of America is nonsense. He is in for himself. And the president who allowed Khashoggi to be cut in pieces uh, without any repercussions whatsoever is now allowing the Christians and the Kurds to be massacred by the Turks. And I believe, and I want to say this with great uh, solemnity, the president of the United States is in danger of losing the mandate of heaven if he permits this to happen. Jim, uh, so there's Pat Robertson Nevertheless, although there are concerns, and who knows whether the um, uh, the raid yesterday will change some of this, uh, there are some cracks appearing in the evangelical support for the president. Yeah, yeah. Let me first first let me say that uh, the mandate of heaven is a Confucian term, but, but, you, <laughs> but you kind of you kind of catch the guy's drift. Here. Yeah. Uh, and but 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 he is he is only the. I mean. He is the uh, uh, one of the very few who have actually kept up his criticism. I, th- I think he uh, uh, after 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 he said that he said that you know he was looking for uh, for uh, for a rolled umbrella yeah. uh, 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 next to Trump. But uh, other other ones like Jerry Falwell As in Jr. Neville Chamberlain for yes. those of you who aren't getting that. Uh, Sorry about that. That's fine. I okay. got that one. <laughs> uh, but 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 uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. is on board. He's yeah. uh, he's very strongly on. I haven't heard from uh, much more from Tony Perkins to see if he a uh, Family Research Council. So it's it's uh, so far. I think that's it's holding. I think is it loosening? Yeah, I think it is loosening a little bit. Edward, I don't. Th- I mean, Trump needs a big 
vote from the evangelical community to yes, win re-election. Everybody seems to agree about that. Yes, and certainly here in the South, we're particularly attuned to evangelicals and, and their political positions on, on issues, right? And he needs to, to focus on those issues that, that drive the evangelical vote. Uh, you know, a lot of times friends of mine who are not in that camp ask, well, how can evangelicals stay with the president despite a lot of his personal um, foibles, for want of a better word? Uh, and the fact of the matter is a lot of – if you talk to evangelicals, they'll go back to the Old Testament. They go, well, you know, God chose, chooses a lot of questionable individuals as his emissaries on earth. He chose Jacob despite stealing uh, his brother's birthright. He chose Moses despite the, a murder he committed. He chose David, King David, despite what he did uh, with Bathsheba's husband. He chose – uh, Paul, despite uh, the fact that he originally persecuted Christians. So th- that's where evangelicals fall back upon in that they're going to focus on what uh, he's doing versus who he is. And if he, they don't like who he's do- what he's doing, they could turn on him. Well, Trump checks a lot of those boxes. Well, Melita, here's what's interesting. Okay, so again, and this is the last set of numbers because, again, I realize that on the radio it's hard to uh, do numbers for people without the ability to show you any visuals on this. But asked to describe the strength of their approval for Trump. They say now 81-plus percent of them support him for re-election, as according to this study. But asked about the strength of their approval, 44% of evangelicals say they do approve now, but those 44%, they claim that Trump could lose their support, depending on what happens in the year ahead, as opposed to only 31% who say they are solid for him. Now, that said, 40, 47% of white evangelicals say they're, they're in, period. He can't do anything to change their minds. Well, this survey was released 10 days ago. Yeah. Some of the polling went all the way back to mid-September. There's a lot of water under the Trump bridge since then in that, um, you know, the the Kurds' um, abandonment of the Kurdish alliance that we've always had has happened since this survey took place. And there are other, there's a lot of stuff that's come out in the House um, witnesses that have leaked from those proceedings. So um, I, I think the further erosion of even these numbers would be demonstrated if you conducted yeah. the same poll of the right. same respondents. All right. We got to we got to get a break in. Edward, do you have a quick comment? The only thing I'll I'll add or, or to, to what Melita was saying is that a lot will also depend on who the Democratic nominee is. Yeah, absolutely. Because in the end, it's a binary choice. And yeah. if it's some, similar to what we've seen in the past, what we're seeing in these debates, the evangelical community is likely to come home to Trump. That's a good way to move on because everything in this survey points to exactly that. The people who were surveyed are all in flux about who they want the Democratic nominee to be and whether they'll support the nominee regardless of who it is. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. I'm Gil Rogers, director of the Georgia and Alabama offices of the Southern Environmental Law Center. The Southern Environmental Law Center is an advocacy organization that uses the power of the law to protect the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the natural special places here in Georgia. We see it as a natural synergy being an underwriter of Georgia Public Broadcasting. We see public radio as an important audience. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. On the next Fresh Air, we talk with Prince's biographer, Dan Pipenbring. Shortly before his death, Prince selected Pipenbring to help him write his memoir. The book includes pages Prince had written and left behind about his childhood and adolescence. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. And you can listen live on the GPB apps, available at your favorite app store. Jim Galloway, we've only got a few minutes left, but I I was really uh, fascinated by the column that you uh, wrote for yesterday, the Sunday Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is still online. Uh, People can go to AJC.com and find it. You you took on a big national issue, but you found a really interesting uh, local slant on it. And basically you were addressing Trump's war against what he calls the deep state. 
And part of it was based on the fact that you, Susan Rice's book is out. You uh, she was here. She was here last week. And you quote from her, but you also talk about Charles Shapiro, who is a former diplomat and now the president of the World Affairs Council of Atlanta. Just in general, first of all, what was the point you wanted to make in that column so we can talk okay, about? Okay, well, it a it just it goes back to the impeachment inquiry, and in, in, in that the Democratic case is being made by these State Department workers, uh, Foreign Service officers, uh, pretty much all of them, who have who have decided not to obey uh, the orders not to not to show up, and they they're responding to the to the subpoenas, and they are very much establishing this this quid quid pro quo, and and what, what I'm what I'm seeing is, and, and, and this happened before, uh, this was happening even before last week, but but you see this, you, you see that everybody's talking about the hollowing out of the State Department, and I and I don't think people quite realize how important th- that is. That's not deep state. That is infrastructure. That is that is that is a series of embassies, all a, a network that's all across the globe, trying to keep us out of trouble. And when you when you when you uh, when you toss aside all this expertise, then uh, then then the world becomes more dangerous, not less. Who is Charles Shapiro, and what did you say about what did he tell he you? He was he was a he, he was a U.S. Amb- he was a he's retired I think eleven years. He, uh, uh-huh. U.S. U.S. ambassador to Venezuela yep. was his high point. But he started he started he was he was in on the invasion in Granada uh, back in eighty three. He was he showed up and he he showed up in a gray flannel suit there as a, as a as a diplomat. But he he has served for Reagan. He has served for Clinton. He has served. For, for, for Obama, these people are very, very proud of the fact that they will tell a Republican president the same thing that they tell a, a Democratic president, and and I think it's it's uh, this is I mean it's on par with with what, what's happening with the FBI. I think, and I think one of the points Edward that J- Jim pointed out in this is that uh, Georgia, like every other state in this country, we need. We need a professional class of of uh, diplomats in how we conduct our business overseas. Well, the fact of the matter is, um, uh, you know, our import export uh, needs here in this state uh, clearly demonstrate exactly what Jim's talking about. Uh, we are in the process of finishing deepening this the Savannah port, uh, which will be a, a major artery. Uh, to the world from Georgia with Georgia goods. And so Jim's absolutely right. I would uh, sort of simplify it a bit over what uh, and what Jim's saying is that we need around the world what I, what I call a don't do that guy, what a don't yep. do that gal, uh, someone who will tell uh, whoever's in power, uh, honestly, you just can't do that. Uh, this well, is we not also a good idea. Need um, someone in power who will listen but, to the people who say and, don't do that. And, and 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 I agree with you. And and hopefully we will have folks uh, who are elected on either side of the political aisle doing so. And you know we have a lot of honorable people, as Jim has pointed out, who are serving around the world, sometimes in very dangerous locations, uh, and serving our needs. And and we need to honor them, and we don't need to cast aspersions upon uh, their character just because they may, at one time or the other, uh, be disagreeing with the president. Melita? I would broaden Jim's point to say that many of the domestic departments of our government are also losing career people under the Trump administration. Department of Agriculture moved a whole set of offices um, outside of Washington to the Midwest, knowing that they would not transfer. So the government is losing a whole lot of deep knowledge about how government works across many departments, not just the Department of State. Jim, it's uh, interesting as we kind of take a turn that Melita gives us a chance to do. She talks about Sonny Perdue, uh, our agriculture secretary and former governor, who uh, did do just that. He he took the entire research division um, and shipped it to Missouri and shipped them off to knowing they didn't want to. And one of the their concern is the employees who state did not want to be transferred with that. This is all part of the effort to uh, to 
erase sort of the kind of research they were doing on issues that might be important to the agriculture community, but that might not be in the best interest of the Trump administration. Right, right. There was a uh, um, one of the uh, former researchers uh, put a op-ed in the in the Washington, Washington Post, Post maybe two two weeks ago, yep. uh, basically saying that the uh, two papers that the, the, his his department had put out. Uh, had undercut uh, the, the the Trump administration. One was showing the economic, beneficial economic impact that food stamps have in certain communities. Uh, and the other one was on climate change. Let me, while we're talking, we've gone back to Trump. And I want to, one last thing, uh, Mr. Lindsay. Uh, having seen the Chris Carr tweet saying uh, he supports uh, McConnell, he supports Isaacson, he supports uh, Purdue, who all uh, signed the non-binding resolution condemning the House's impeachment inquiry. Uh, were you at all surprised that Johnny Isaacson signed on to that? Isaacson has been there, there are two reasons for bringing that up. One, when Trump, when 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 Isaacson released a statement about the uh, raid that uh, 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 the successful raid yesterday. Uh, he he started by complimenting the 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 men he by honoring the service uh, men and women who really accomplished that. Uh, the jolt pointed out today that Purdue started by saying Tr- Trump deserves uh, credit. I, I was a little surprised that Isaacson signed on to that resolution, especially since he's leaving in a couple months. I wasn't surprised. Uh, Senator Isaacson has always been concerned about the institution of the Congress. And uh, whether or not uh, certain processes are being followed, he has been more than willing on a, on many occasions to step out and say that he disagreed with this policy or that policy of President Trump. But he also strongly believes that certain uh, protocols, that certain uh, processes need to be honored and recognized in order to maintain the integrity of the United States Congress. Jim. And he's concerned that uh, what's going on in the House. Now, they still have time to do what we've been talking about. But up until this point, at least, uh, he is concerned uh, that uh, certain protocols are not being followed that that endanger the long-term integrity. Right. We're running out of time. I'm going to okay. give you each a little. Okay, just, just, a couple. just very quickly. Yeah. Uh, uh, keep in mind that one of the signers already before Isaacson was McConnell, and and he and he and Isaacson very very rarely separate themselves. Okay. Uh, the other part of that was uh, what I'm told is that Isaacson wanted to make made very sure uh, first that this was not this was about the process and not the substance of the accusation ah, because he was okay. he was worried that that uh, that he would be talking about something on which he might have to rule as a juror. Lita, you yeah. got about 20 seconds to sum up your thoughts on that. Well, I think it'll be very interesting to see how the pictures of David Perdue at the World Series game. Oh, we didn't get to that. Um play Perdue out was... in the campaign. Purdue was standing Purdue right next, right to, the next president. to Trump as people were shouting, lock him up. Lock him up. It was a very strange spectacle. It's interesting that there are Democrats who are saying this is not the way to treat a president of the United States, uh, giving Trump a taste of his own medicine. But I got to say, this is the city of the shutdown. And I would say maybe three-quarters of the people in that stadium yeah. were impacted by it. All right. That's it. We talked right up to the limits of our time on this show. Uh, we'll be back again. Invite him. Oh, tomorrow, real quickly. Uh, Ariel Hart, uh, who is the uh, health reporter at the AJC, and Andy Miller of Georgia Health News, they're going to come in here and help us understand what the heck is Medicare for all really mean? Uh, what is universal coverage? We're going to drill down on health care with those two tomorrow. See you at 2 o'clock.